All right, everybody, and we are live. Episode number nine for the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. And before we get started, we want to, again, thank all of our listeners, all of our viewers for liking our content, for sharing our content, for viewing our content. Um, I have not checked numbers from last week. Uh, perhaps my, my charming co-host has, but but in general, the numbers for the past month have been very encouraging, so we are, we are happy to see that. Um, and episode nine, definitely a milestone, not as much of a milestone as episode 10 will be. So we will get through this episode as quickly as possible. And uh, no, I am, I am kidding, of course. Um, we do have a, a, uh, a piece that I will be sharing a little bit later on, but we wanted to stick with the, with the free form at the beginning uh, to kind of find our chops a little bit. So uh, I had a couple of things written down, but I will save them for after my article. Joe, I wanted to turn it over to you and see how things are going, uh, see how your Thanksgiving was, and then uh, how last week has been. Yeah, though Thanksgiving was was good. I, uh, I traveled to Arizona, as a lot of you may know. And I, I got to say, flying on the plane nowadays is a lot better than it used to be. You know, you get there, there's no lines anywhere. There's always a gap in the middle seat. You don't get stuff in there. Um, there's just overall less people, low security lines. It's, uh, it's, it's, it, it wasn't bad. It's, uh, I, I wish that it would stay this way forever. Uh, I did create a, somewhat of an incident <laughs> in security. Um, I was in such a rush to, to uh, leave work, get packed, and get to the airport on time that I might have forgot to unpack some uh, important things from my backpack that TSA might not like, uh, specifically a clip of nine millimeter bullets. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, no, Joe, remind me, I think for TSA, they only allow things 38 and below, right? You know, so I think you probably, if, if maybe if you had 22, maybe you would have been okay. Yeah, I don't know if it's 38 and below or no metric system. I don't know which right, one it right. is, but uh, either way, they weren't having it. So they called over like, you know, I knew something was up when I was waiting for my bag to go through the little x-ray machine and it just wasn't coming out. <laughs> and then I saw the lady just staring at it and then she, uh, you know, tapped her coworker on the shoulder and they both stared at it. And then uh, she started doing like the, you know, she pulled up her microphone and called for support, called for backup. And I was like, oh shit, this is, this is going to be a little bit more than just a, you know, a, a bottle of toothpaste that I left in there or something. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, so it's going to be, going to be a little bit more than the uh, liquid minimum catching you. So how did that situation end up, end up resolving itself? Did they uh, make you, did they let you keep the clip or did they toss the whole thing out? Uh, yeah. So they pulled it out and then the lady right away was like, what is this, nine? <laughs> yeah, it's nine millimeter. And then uh, they had to call over the cops, and, like, a cop came over, and he was super chill. He was just like, like yeah, we just got to run your ID, make sure you're not, like, a terrorist or anything. We can let you go. And I, I was like, okay, can I get the clip back? And they're like, no. And I was like, what if you take the bullets out? Then can I get the clip back? And they're like, no, you can't do it. You can't take that on. And I was like, why? That doesn't make any sense. They're like, well, I mean, there's there's uh, criminals that divide it up. One criminal will bring on the clip, the other will bring the gun, the other will bring bullets, and then they'll all uh, assemble it all on the plane and do something. Teamwork. Yeah, teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. Wait, no, dreamwork makes the teamwork. But yeah, either way, uh, they were gonna mail it. I had like the option to mail it to myself without the bullets, I guess. But it was the the shipping charges were 
outrageous. It was like going to be 30 bucks to send it like a few blocks away from the airport to my place. So I just, I, I just uh, decided to surrender it. But I think I have a strike on my record now, unfortunately, whatever that means. So uh, I got to fly under the radar for the next near future here. You know, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have never really had any run-ins with uh, security at, at TSA, but I will say my, my brother happened to coincidentally share a name with a terrorist that was associated with uh, the, uh, the uh, North Irish groups. I, I, I don't know what they're called, but anyways, his, his name at one point flagged that when we would travel and it was like, clearly this nine-year-old is not some terrorist mastermind. So let him through, but you know, it's just uh, a number on a list and that's how, that's how TSA does it. You know, that's how TSA does it. I wanted to revisit something over Thanksgiving. And if we brought this up on last episode, I apologize, but I wanted to cover it again. Talk a little bit about cranberry sauce. Ooh, yes. Cranberry sauce. So as, as you may know, and a lot of our listeners may know, there's really no bigger tragedy than busting out the canned tomato sauce on Thanksgiving. And specifically, the worst part about it is when you pour out the can and it still has the ribbing from the can imprinted into the gelatinous substance that you're putting on your turkey. Like nothing about this is right. Nothing about this is patriotic. Uh, the pilgrims would definitely be opposed to something like that especially when it's so easy to make your own cranberry sauce yourself. Literally just three ingredients, cranberries, sugar, water. It's all you need. And it's, it's much infin- infinitely better than that stuff you get out of the can. How, how about you? How was your Thanksgiving? And did more, most importantly, did you use the, what kind of cranberry sauce was on the table? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's hard to think of an issue right now that's more important for America than cranberry sauce. And uh, definitely want to make sure they cover this in a lot of detail. I am a huge fan of cranberry sauce. I always have been. I think I always will be. Um, I'm less of a fan of cranberry juice, but cranberry sauce, I'm definitely a a fan. My wife is a vegetarian. And so this year for Thanksgiving, she made a, a quiche. And we had some green beans on the side and some stuffing. And so, of course, there was a mad dash for the stuffing, kind of the Thanksgiving uh, highlight of really probably anyone's get-together. Stuffing went by quick. Green beans were pretty good, and the quiche was also pretty good. Um, with the I'm assuming, you, cranberries. Uh, I'm assuming yeah. you deep, deep fried that quiche. Is that, the, is that how they do it? She oven-baked, oven-baked quiche, and uh, had a great recipe. Uh, she had made this previously uh, for Christmas, and so it ended up playing out pretty well. Um, I have myself been trying to actually eat more eggs as part of my diet. And so I was happy to have the, the quiche as, as a part of that uh, effort to fulfill that desire. But it was pretty good. I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Unfortunately, no cranberries this year. Uh, uh, hopefully uh, get those on. I know, I know, I know. And I, like I said, I, I am a fan of, of, the, of the cranberries. And I, I'm, I, I tend to be forgiving for the gelatinous cranberry can as well. Um, not my favorite, not my, not my preferred. My, my wife's mother does make cranberries with, uh, you know, actually making them as opposed to just, you know, uncovering this, you know, slug out of a can. She, she does make them and they're always, always a treat. But uh, this year we did not get down there, unfortunately. So hopefully next year we do and we enjoy a nice plate of cranberries. 
Um, well, were there, what else was going on during your week? I know I kind of opened up with, with some topics last time. I wanted to give you the chance to do that this episode before we dive into the, to the article to be shared. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a busy week, uh, moving week for me up here in Portland. Uh, I actually moved a block away from my old apartment. <laughs> so, Why'd you move? Uh, just change the scenery, mix things up, you know, throw out, throw out some old habits, bring in some new ones. And, very uh, good. Yeah. And it was uh, very taxing. Um, it's pretty funny, though, because I just <laughs> I literally had a cart. So I just carted all my stuff like <laughs> up the street, <laughs> up like the busy road, you know. Right, and, right. Uh, I'm just like carrying a king size bed one minute and then like, I don't know, a dresser like 20 minutes later. Uh, I think some people started to laugh at me. There, there was a bomb I kept passing like at least 10 times and <laughs> started cracking up towards the end. Uh, my family also had a moving week this week. My parents sold their house and are, and are moving and they, they hired a moving company to move some stuff out to my sister who was uh, in California and they hired this moving company, got everything packed up. Moving company did a, did a great job, diligent, careful, thorough. My father took it upon himself to give them a great review online, five out of five Google reviews, probably on Yelp, you know, the, the whole nine yards. When the furniture arrived at my sister's house, almost every single piece of furniture was destroyed. I mean, it was as if they put it through a wood chipper. I mean, it was unbelievable. Like they, we had a table that they had shipped out with four chairs. Every single chair was broken. Now, have you wow. ever failed at something 100%? I mean, just try to wrap your head around that level of failure. 100% fatality rate on the chairs of that table. I mean, it was, it was uncanny. Wow. So what was the, what was the nature of the damage? Was it like, it like just the, the semi truck had been in a rollover accident with all the furniture in it or, you know, what termites, like what was the, the nature? It, it, it looked like they had just thrown stuff into the truck. I mean, it was, it was like legs, the tables were like split off. I mean, it was, it was, you know, damage to like hardwood furniture. It wasn't like uh, scratches and scrapes. It was like legs were snapped in half. You know, it was, uh, it was like something out of a, out of a horror film. I wanted, I, I told my sister, I said, I wish they had a camera showing the bed of the truck as they were traveling just to see this furniture flying back and forth like a jackass routine. <laughs> yeah. That, that reminds me of like all the, the, the videos with Steve-O in the, in the porta potty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, they just like roll it over and they take it bungee jumping or whatever. You know, maybe that would be like the, the new standard, you know, that's like speaking back to our episode last week, the one, one before about transparency over trust. Like, would it really be that hard to put a camera in the bed of a moving truck just to watch your stuff like the whole time? Like, would it really yeah. be that difficult to stream that? That seems like that'd be pretty simple to me. Well, but then the, the company has to actually be careful with stuff. So right, maybe right. Maybe the better exactly. move is to strap the GoPro to the table. Right, right. And, and let it roll. Yeah, exactly. Let it roll. Yeah, I, I was just laughing. I just thought, you know, in, in my in my college career, I only ever experienced one person who took a test and got a zero on the test. I mean, it was and this was like an uncanny feat of strength. I mean, to get a zero on a test. I mean, and it, this is one of those like 8am classes. And so the joke was that that poor kid could have slept in for an extra hour and a half, instead of going and taking that test and have the exact same grade. I mean, well, that's interesting. I mean, it was. So let me let me ask you this: If you were a teacher, like a professor in school, and you gave a let's say you gave a true/false test, okay, 
Mm-hmm. And it's 20 questions, true, false. And one of your students ends up getting a 0% on it, which means they got every single one wrong. Right. Does that actually mean they deserve 100% at that point? I feel like that case can be made. Because they did better than the 50-50 that you would expect from just guessing? Yeah, because the, the odds of them randomly you know, choosing the wrong answer on 20 straight questions where you have a 50, 50 chance is astronomical. Or or, they they must've known the the content if that happens. That, or they had like uh, a truly fundamental misunderstanding. Like, so for example, if it was a true false test, but it was like, is this number even, is this number odd? And they got every question wrong. It could be because they didn't understand the definition of even or, or odd. So either it can mean what you're saying, mm-hmm. or it can mean that they had like some deep fundamental misunderstanding about a, some a core concept. Misunderstanding. Yeah. 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 A a a mistake from first principles, if you will, which is I think the worst kind of mistake one can make. If you're. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Or maybe yeah. they were co- copying from someone in a yeah, right. reflection. Yeah. <laughs> the scantron looked like A was B and B was A. You know, that's is, I, I think we, we, we've touched on this topic before, but it, I, I think it's worth revisiting. But there is, there is always a gap between what you are measuring and what you want the measurement to tell you about. And so for, for test taking, you're using the test as a proxy for comprehension. But the problem is that there's really no way to map a test score to comprehension. You, you, you have to assume that is the case. And so and basically you find this example with like cheating, that there's really no way to distinguish between somebody cheating and getting 100% on a test versus somebody comprehending the material and getting 100% on the test because your metric mm-hmm. is the exact same. And so, you know, one of the things that, um, that I always think about is, you know, are, and of course other people that I've, I've kind of, I've, I've taken this idea from, but I, I wonder that like as colleges get more and more competitive and as colleges get more and more, uh, you know, this feeling of, you know, having to go to college to succeed. It's like, are we just going to transform them in, into institutions where we're basically measuring people's ability to cheat? Because I think both of us would admit that cheating is rampant in college. I mean, that was both of our experiences. If, and oh, I, yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, I mean, you know, and it's not just everybody cheats. It's just that in every class, people are cheating. And that if, and every, if, if in every class, people are cheating, some of them look at good grades. And the ones who are getting good grades will be indistinguishable from the people who are getting good grades by virtue of working hard. And so what are we at that point, you know, what are we really measuring? You know, it seems to me like it, it could be a, a, a fairly failed metric. Yeah. Even, even the professors know that everyone's cheating. Like I feel bad for the students that aren't cheating because they actually have to do all the work. Exactly. Right. And they get the same results as the people that don't. Like a, a professor that we both know um, told me straight up, he's like, yeah, all that, every test there's about 20 kids, uh, you know, 20% of the class or whatever, all sit in the back and just pass around notes and information and text each other or IM or whatever. And it's just, it, it, it's just the status quo now, like people just accept it. But the, yeah. the bigger crime is what that does for the valuation of my degree. It, it, it devalues the degree that I and you have every year because right. more people more people can get these degrees fraudulently, you know, quote unquote. Um, but it's just, this is another example uh, where proves Scott Adams law, where if there's ever a high incentive to do something and a small chance of getting caught, you're going to see cheating every single time. 
Yes. And, and on that point, and I, and I do want to preface uh, an episode that we will have at some point in the future, not episode number nine, probably not episode number 10, but I do want you and I to, to spend an episode talking about uh, scandal. And I'm really excited. I just got a book today written by Alex Berenson. Alex Berenson has made a name for himself recently with some, some I, I will say, contrarian COVID-19 coverage. I, I don't want to get into uh, attacking his views or, or defending his views because the book that I got from him today actually has nothing at all to do with COVID-19. It has everything to do with the different ways that uh, large corporations and, and banks and uh and, and stocks have uh, basically the idea that these quarterly reports, that numbers that, that corporations give out, have been very bad for uh, trying to accurately evaluate companies and that it has led to all sorts of scandals. So I'm very excited for that because I think it ties in extremely neatly with some of the ideas that Scott Adams talks about, about um, kind of the, the, the principle that you were just giving but also into the principle of persuasion because you know these people that run companies and people who are investors, they're smart people. And yet we, we, we have these examples of people being conned or of, of people not, um, not seeing things maybe the way that, that they should. And so I'm, I'm very excited to uh, get into this book and to report back on it in a couple episodes. It's called, it's called The Number, and it's written by Alex Berenson. And I'm really excited for it because I want to tie it into some of uh, Scott Adams' ideas, I think, and sometimes feel a little abstract. Uh, I think this book will be an, a nice anchor point for uh, some of those ideas. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I think that fraud and cheating is, is a, a lot bigger part of our society and culture than we think it is. Can you um, think of a single class in college where people did not cheat? Because nope. you and I both went to college for, for, for four years, and then I went two more years after for a master's. Can you think of a single class where people didn't cheat? Uh, nope. I can't think of a single class in college. I can't think of a single class in high school. Um, I actually, it, this was a class that you and I both took. It was uh, material science engineering. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, I think you know the story, but it, it, essentially the teacher said, and this was in the rubric, this was in the syllabus. It said that you're allowed to get caught cheating three times in an exam before they take the exam away and give you a zero. So you, that means yeah. that you could straight up reach over, grab your, your, your peers test, put it on your desk, start copying the answers, get caught once, steal another student's, get caught twice, uh, and then turn your paper in with no consequences. <laughs> yeah, I don't, it, it, I wanna, I, I, I'm uh, trying to keep a list of things that, that we'll cover in future topics. I, I really do wanna cover a future topic, uh, maybe to dedicate a, a whole episode to it, of kind of where, where we think this college phenomenal will go. I mean, I, I think both of us have views that the status quo of college right now is kind of silly, that it's, it's kind of like, it's it certainly for, uh, for many people, it's the case that, uh, you know, they, they pursue college and the, and the idea of pursuing a better life and, and having good jobs. But for, for a lot of people too, it's also just the case that they go to college because that's just what they've been told they do when they get to a certain age. I mean, that was certainly the case for me and my family. It was when you turn 18, you go to college. And yeah. I, I, I worry that making it a kind of this default that people, and I would include myself in this category, are taking away from those who, who really want to be there and could really make the most of it. Um, and that I think you know, cheating and all these other, you know, things that go along with that cheating is kind of 
part of that, but that's a huge can of worms. I mean, I think I want to leave this right now and just say cheating is rampant and it's another good example of how what we're measuring is not always a good indication of what we are trying to actually assess and that there's always a gap between those two things. But in the case of GPA and of intelligence, I think there's going to be a, a huge gap there. Or and let me not say intelligence. Let me instead, let me instead say comprehension. Um, that your GPA does not necessarily reflect your ability to comprehend material, but perhaps your ability to fake that you comprehended material. Let, let me let me just add one. I know we want to save this for a future episode, but I, I just want to add one point to that. Sure. Uh, that just how analogous college and voting are from that perspective, uh, meaning like, you know, it's the status quo that you should go out and go to college. Like it's kind of assumed that you should go to college regardless of the results that's going to or impact that that will have on your life. And we're like, Oh no, you have to go to college. You have to go to college. And then whenever someone asks why it's like, you, you just have to do it. And it's very similar to voting. I see voting as the same exact thing. Like we, there's all these PSAs and all these social media influencers and all these people that are saying, Oh, go out and vote, go out and vote. Everyone needs to vote. Everyone needs to vote. And, and then here I am, I'm saying, why, why, why do we want people to vote that don't want to vote? Why, why are we forcing them to do that? What, what could possibly be the motivation for something like that? Have, have you ever wondered that or do you have any insights? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I, I think that's a really good point. Um, certainly I, I am in the category of people that does encourage people to vote and it, it is, it is a fair question. Question is why. And I, I think for, for me at least, um, I, I had a teacher one time who, you know, I said something that, that, that to me made sense at the time. And it still makes sense to me, but not, maybe not as much. But the idea that voting gives you the right to complain, that is basically if you kind of sat out, then, you know, if you, if you didn't do your part in directing the, the direction, then you shouldn't complain about the direction. I kind of still think that way, but a little less. Um, I... To me, you know, voting is is uh, certainly something that I I do vote, and it's something that I I probably do without credit without too much critical thinking. Um, in other words, I probably apply more thinking to who I vote for than whether or not I should vote at all. I know that there are people who who don't vote out of principle, basically, that the idea that like they're not going to to choose between the lesser of two evils that they're just going to not vote for someone who they don't support. And I, I understand that mindset and I, I don't, uh, I don't mock that mindset. Um, but I, I, I probably spend more time thinking about who I will vote for than if I should vote. And, you know, I, I certainly, I, I agree with the point that you're making that, you know, I, I probably should spend more time thinking about why I vote and, you know, kind of what, you know, is it just this thing where, you know, people go through the motions and, you know, it's just, you know, does it, does it mean um, if, if by getting everyone to vote, but without explaining why are we, are we cheapening it? And I think that, that that's a fair point. Yeah. And it, it has direct influences on the outcomes of elections too. It, mm -hmm. You know, like if you have, you now have a different demographic voting than just those people that are educated and confident enough that they would vote on on their own volition and instead we're you know going out there and, and in some instances they're busing people in to uh to cast their votes and i know this was more popular in previous elections i don't know if it really happened in this one but yeah it just there, there's something that fundamentally doesn't make sense 
about it to me. It feels a little fishy. I don't know if there's a higher motivation or if this is just like one of those stupid things that humans do without any, uh, any real end game in sight. But I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I fall under the camp of someone who does not vote. And, um, as to why it, it's kind of hard for me to really even understand and, and articulate. I think it just has something to do with not wanting to pick a particular party to fall under a particular team. It feels a lot like, like betting on like a racetrack or something on horses or on like a sports team. Right. It, it feels, feels the same way. And it's like, well, I'm not going to bet on sports because like all the support I have for a team is largely irrational. Like what, what, what rational reasons can a person have for supporting the Cincinnati Bengals over the New England Patriots? You know, besides like maybe they live there, they know someone from there, they like the colors of the team. Like, but at the same time, you still see millions and millions and millions and millions of people that fall into that paradigm. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And especially when you have a two-party system where that gamesmanship is just becomes baked into it. I mean, one, one thing that I've, I've often have thought more about, and I actually wanted to kind of get this written down better before I presented it here, but I, I, I'll present it to you just kind of as, as an idea. And then you know, I'll kind of give you the last word on this. Um, what if, so right now we have Republicans, we have Democrats, uh, as I say demographics, we have, to, have Republicans and Democrats. And we basically count on those two, parties to encapsulate a whole range of opinions that at least from my assessment don't necessarily follow from like some set of core principles you know it, it's almost kind of like a hodgepodge i i, I know people would disagree with me on that i i, I don't mean that to be um insulting and I, and I don't argue that you couldn't argue that there that those uh, positions do come from deeper principles but one thing that i that i was thinking about recently is rather than having political parties what if we just had people vote with, with uh, according to um, mindsets or according to different scales? So right now we have kind of like this liberal conservative scale that people kind of fit on. But I think we could add other scales to that. And what we would do is we would elect people to represent a position, almost kind of like a lawyer representing, you know, the defendant or the prosecution. We would take a, we would take a certain issue and rather than split it up into, into just two opposing factions, split it up into like maybe five or six different factions all along different metrics. Like one metric could be conservative, one metric could be liberal, but then another metric might be risk aversion. Another one might be risk taking. Another axis might be something like long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. In other words, you, you have uh, teams for every issue where rather than trying to pick a party, you try to break it up into different sections and then each section has a person that just advocates for their position and that you might get something like a, like a parliamentary system or something where you have, where we are trying to build a coalition with these different groups, but you count on a group to kind of only represent one idea. And then you depend on them to work, to build teams to support something or not. And I, I'm not doing a great job explaining that to you, but you know, hopefully that's something to kind of give you an idea of kind of what I was wanted to talk about again in a future episode. But you know, something that we might we might do to explore topics a little bit deeper, because I don't know about you, but for me, my feeling is that, you know, the liberal conservative debate gets stale pretty quickly. And there are oftentimes other points of view that I would like to hear from as well that, you know, they have to pick between one of those two labels to even get in the conversation. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point, focusing more on the, the systems or strategies instead of the individual candidates. Uh, it is. It does seem a little strange that in all in all nations and in all the political systems, or at least most of them, it does end up boiling down to a two party system. Like it seems like that for some reason is the is how nature wants it to be. Mm. Whether that's good or bad, I think it seems bad at least because it leads to corruption. Um. In, in short-sighted thinking, because uh, if your thinking doesn't fall into the block of that one person, then, then you're kind of out of luck. You know, you have to pick one or the other. Right. But I, I definitely agree there's massive potential to improve the system. I think that just a couple of dudes in the 1700s will just jotting some stuff down. I think they did a phenomenal job with our constitution. But, um, yeah, I think that there's still vast improvements that can be made. But with, I, with that, yeah. do you want to jump into your piece? Yes, let's do that. And uh, we can spend all night talking about politics, but I want to talk about something a little more important this evening. And so for all those who are, who are with us, again, thank you for joining us. Episode number nine, nine episodes we've been doing this. Uh, great progress. Uh, I, I know for myself, I think for Joe as well, we've, we've, we've enjoyed the road so far and we are looking forward to the next nine. But tonight's episode, we're going to change gears a little bit, change over from the free form onto a, a written piece that I have prepared. The name of this piece is A Name Spoken in Every Language. A name spoken in every language. We shall, in due course, come to see the measure of man as their actions, so defined by those moments the pillars of stagnation and slavery stood against them. When a select few chose the noble path of progress, eye for an eye leaves the whole world in perfect balance. Evil begs for explanation. But what explanation can be given for the relentless abandonment of the pursuit of the good? Simply put, complacency. Too afraid to risk our comfort, we settled for the ancient purgatory of mediocrity. Nay, send me the criminals, those unabashed free thinkers and do-it-yourselfers, that joyous species of man hell-bent on discovering the future. I entered this world a boy. I aim to leave a man. One step on that journey, a radical departure from whitey tidies to boxer briefs. As always, I ask the humble reader to join me. This time, we wander back to summer camp. For most kids, summer camp is a time of adventure and fun. For me, it was a time of suffering. I hated summer camp. I belonged to a select group of people who were not fond of doing things. I prefer the calm and simple life afforded to one within the confines of their home. The notion of going out never had much appeal. So the prospect of summer camp presented itself in a thoroughly daunting manner. But aside from those concerns, there was another fear the fear of undergarment bullying. 
every boy begins their life wearing what are colloquially known as whitey tidies. I was no different. In fact, I was a huge fan of the garment and owned quite a variety. As a youngster, several pairs had designs on the back. To better see these designs, I would often wear my underwear backwards. People often objected. This negated the fold on the front for urination. But this presents no problem to a kid prepared to drop trowel. And I was and remain ready to drop trowel. But I digress. Summer camp would be full of changing in front of people and the possibility of a room full of kids laughing at my underwear as they strutted around in boxers seemed truly awful. I knew it was time to man up. So I asked my mom to buy me different underwear. To prepare for the transition to boxer briefs, I had my mom buy me a few pairs about a month before camp. Now, as I stated above, I have no fear of trouser drop, but there is a time and a place. I figured part of my transition to boxer briefs could include a transition to peeing without pulling my pants all the way down to the ground. I won't dwell too much on the specifics, but if anyone listening still pees the old fashioned way, let me share with you some wisdom to help you with the transition. When reholstering, the key is the reverse hip thrust, but be careful. If you can't get your penis into the cover of your pants, you may accidentally flash the whole bathroom. Practice makes perfect. And, in my opinion, when it comes to picking boxers, avoid buttons on the fly. At first, a button on the fly seems like a nice feature, but this makes peeing much more difficult. Trying to undo a button when you have to pee is like trying to defuse a bomb. And rebuttoning looks awkward as hell. When in public bathrooms, you want to spend as little time with your hands in your pants as possible, generally speaking. Of course, there are always exceptions. As far as sizing, you do have to worry about your penis popping out when you switch to boxers. But with patience, you too will develop the keen eye for picking out the perfect pair. Those few months of practice made a world of difference. To this day, I still pee without pulling my pants all the way down to the ground, and I still wear a more mature undergarment. You are only ever changing. The question is what you change into. I decided to change in to boxer briefs. Thank you. Uh, excellent, excellent. You know, that, that might have been my favorite piece that you've done so far. You know, let me, and I, I, I apologize for not being able to work some more things in, into summer camp, Joe, but I did, I, I wanted to remind you of something real quick when, while you had the memory of summer camp on your mind. I want you to close your eyes and remember with me the raw power, the raw power that you felt when you experienced the unbridled purchasing power of a quarter at summer camp. I mean, that summer, I drank so many blue raspberry slushies, it turned my eyes blue. It was unbelievable. Yeah, now was that just an artifact of, you know, a time before inflation or were quarters it, actually still are valuable? I to, think it was, it was just, it was that summer camp economy, you know, that magical place where for some reason time stood still and money, money stood still and, 
you know, maybe they were still made of silver or something. I don't know, but just, just harnessing the unbridled purchasing power of a quarter was just something truly to behold. I also wanted to just mention, you know, summer camp for me was also full of the old summertime crush. Now I've, I've always been, mm, uh, yes. uh, the, the kind of, uh, the kind of guy to go after girls a little bit out of my, out of my league. It, it has served me well in life, but I remember as a, as a young spry 10 year old hitting on the camp counselor, and looking back, remembering that I thought I had a chance, and of course realizing that I I never did, but you know, it was it, it was still worth the old college try. Yeah, the the, the camp crush that was always the that was always the highlight of my my camping or summer camp experiences. Not that I went on very many, but still, one piece, one part of your piece that I wanted to get a little bit more detail on, mm. and I think you know what I'm going to ask about. Right, right. Uh, there, you were talking about changing changing your your underwear and not flashing your penis in front of everyone right and there was some, right. something about a tuck I, I didn't quite understand the yeah positioning there yeah and, the, and this is a really good point so in that in that part I, I was referring to when you're peeing at a urinal and you're you're peeing through the fly when you mm. when you go to reholster you know i i found that the old reverse hip thrust to kind of kind of you know suck things back in is a is, is a nice move that I use, but you, but you got to be careful. You have got to be careful. You know, uh, look, the last thing you want to do in 2020 is flash a bathroom full of people your penis, and that, that, that's the last thing you want to do. So <laughs> when you're when you're using urinals, when you're peeing in public spaces, be careful. Make sure that your penis is fully tucked away in your pants before you turn away from the stall. That's all that I'm asking. And honestly, again. Practice makes perfect. Believe in yourself, believe in the practice, but, but dedicate yourself to it. And it, with time, it will become natural and it will become a one, one smooth motion. Um, it will just become a part of your peeing routine. So, so another question, did you ever have this type of individual in your summer camps or even elementary school, um, maybe middle school, high school even? And the type of individual I'm referring to is the one that would go into bathrooms to, to, to do a number one and they would walk up to the urinal and instead of using the fly, they would just pull their pants all the way down to their ankles. Yeah. They're yeah. Just freeing the butt cheeks from the backside. Yep. Um, yep. Pants fall down into the urinal splash that's on the ground below. Uh, I have distinct memories of this happening in in my own experience have you seen this before what are your thoughts yeah absolutely and and in fact in the in the the piece i i confess to being among their numbers uh you know basically no, no you know, shame in that yeah it, it, you know it's it, it's a growing experience and we all have to get through it together you know i, I remember you know very fond memories of myself in, in pre-k and kindergarten just that was how we peed, you know, and that was just the, the culture that I grew up in. That was just the, really, I would say the expectations was that you were going to pull your pants all the way down to the ground when you peed. And you're right. Butt cheeks would be out. You know, you would see, you know, for me, I was, I had to pull my shirt up as well. So I would have the shirt tucked under my chin, pants all the way to the ground. <laughs> yeah. The shirt know? under the chin. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, I'm glad that as a 28 year old, I can pee in a urinal without having to do that. But you know, if I saw somebody one day at 20, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about that because what makes the boxer briefs so much better than the whitey tidies? Cause right, right, actually right. rationally, I can't really come up with anything, but just yeah. intuitively they, the boxer, the briefs just feel, feel better. 
it's it's an age-old question. It's an age-old question. I, I'm convinced that we may go back in time and learn that the original Hebrew describing circumcision had nothing at all to do with removing foreskins and everything to do with the transition from mighty tidies to boxer briefs. Interesting. I'm like, I'm like 80, 80, 90% sure of that. And uh, boy, wouldn't that be a shocker to read that. But I will, I will say this, the, why, why do we mock the whitey tidy? Why do we mock it so much? I think it has to deal with the fact that first of all, they're white. Now, I don't think I have to explain to our audience why white undergarments are not the preferred color for undergarments. Um, what, do, what do you mean? Can you, I, I don't understand. I don't follow. Yeah, let me, let me be more explicit. No, no color shows a stain, a stain mm. better than white. No, no color <laughs> shows an accident better than white. It's, it's almost as if the whitey tidy is, is basically holding you to this standard of unblemished perfection. And mm-hmm. I think as a species, we know we, we've learned this from every major religion, you know, humans are flawed creatures. And so to, to, to expose the dirtiest parts of our body to a white piece of fabric is just really, I think, a little, a little uncalled for and it, uh, quite frankly, a little dramatic. Yeah. And, and furthermore, how about, how about porcelain? How about toilets, urinals? When, when have you ever seen a urinal or toilet that was not white? Exactly right. And they, exactly What's up with right. that? I think, you know, it, let's, we, we have to depend on the passage of time to be the ruler of how we measure progress. But unfortunately, even after long periods of time, we still have things with us that have not improved for the better. And certainly having white porcelain toilets that highlight every smear, every streak, every splatter, every hair is truly just inviting unwelcome acknowledgement of a part of human life that I think, quite frankly, we can all do without focusing on. Yeah, they couldn't agree more. Um, another phrase that you use during your piece uh, is one of my favorites, uh, dropping trowel. Yes, yes. And I wanted to get your take on what you thought the origins of that term are and what they mean. Does it have something to do with trousers or do you think that there's some other origin? You know, it's, 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 it's definitely a great question and probably one that many a linguist has been, you know, several time, uh, several, several articles and several papers working on. I would, I would say, I think the safe bet is on trouser, but you know, language is a funny thing. You know, you think you know where words come from, and it turns out they came from somewhere else. And um, you know, maybe there was an, an ancient city at one point that was called Trow, and that was again maybe a a custom for those people to pee that way. Uh, I really, I really don't know. Maybe the saying, you know, we we had the saying now that says, you know, when in Rome, you know, maybe it was a when in Trow, drop Trow. I don't, I, I I'm not sure. When in Trow, drop. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good theory. And isn't there a, like when you're camping and you, you have to dig a hole, the device mm. that you use to dig a hole, is that not, not called a trowel? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Uh, I think, I think we're on to something there. Yep. Could be. Could be. Um, okay. Let me look over my notes some more. Did you have any other closing thoughts on, on summer camp, on dropping trowel? Yeah. Objects. 
I want I want everybody listening to to know that if I did it, they can do it. If anybody out there is, is trying to make the transition from Mighty Tidies to Boxer Briefs, know that there are people you can talk to that can help. Know that people have done it, that it can feel like a daunting task. It may even feel like an impossible task. You know, you've been, you've been peeing this way your whole life. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And when in doubt, ask for help. Okay, excellent. Actually, I, I lied. I do have one more question. Uh, you've provided some great pragmatic advice for some of our male listeners out there, but mm. I, I don't want to isolate our female listeners. Right, right, right. Um, what, what can they do? What, what types of actions can they implement in their own lives to improve their, their, their peeing habits? You know, that is such a good question. And I, I, it, rather than, than try and give an answer, instead, I will promise our listeners this. We will we will have a female guest come on this show and talk about any number of ways that, that women can improve their urination habits. And uh, I think that would be an, an episode that I, I think for all of us, we would, we would want to hear about that. And uh, so we will make that a, a, a priority for the new year, 2021 to get a female guest on here and talk about, you know, some of the, some of the, the aspects of girl to womanhood transitions that occur, particularly around urination, particularly around urination. Okay, well, can't wait for those. Now, I would like to switch gears a little bit. I know that we haven't really done this before, but I want, I want to talk a little business. Sure, sure. Here for the next couple minutes. Very and good, very good. Specifically, um, I think we've been doing a great job with our social media. Um, we have the Twitter account out there at roses underscore rhetoric. Um, we, we have some Instagram posts that I've been making for my profile. But I think it's time we expand to the newest and freshest frontier of social media, which is, of course, TikTok. Now, I was a big disbeliever in TikTok for a very long time, um, especially with all the news that it's just the Chinese stealing all our data. But uh, regret, um, you know, not super excited about it. But I did end up downloading Twitter or TikTok over the past couple of weeks. And I got to say, it's pretty good. It's, it's pretty interesting. It's interesting how it works. Have, have you had experience with it before? I, I have not. And I will, I will try and do that. I like what you're saying. TikTok, it sounds like it is about time. Yeah. And one of the biggest takeaways I took was that it's not just 15-year-old girls doing dances, provocative dances. Uh, I think that, was, is, that might be a little bit of an unfair statement for what TikTok is. But I am very interested in the engagement and the model of it. So from my understanding, you, you scroll through it and then you just start scrolling through videos that it randomly selects for you. And it's basically an AI driven software that depending on how long you spend watching each video or if you watch it twice and they're all pretty short, you know, they don't last really much longer than like 10 or 15 seconds usually. Um, but just by your engagement to these posts, it rearranges them, it puts new ones in, and it determines what your likes are, what your interests are, and then it keeps providing them for you. So it's like, it's a black hole of just dopamine dumps, right? Because right, right. The, you don't have to say, like, I like this video, I don't like this video, or you don't have to specifically go and follow individual people. The AI just reads reads what your behaviors are and then gives you what you want. So. I think that's pretty genius what they're doing there, but it's also 
why I think it might work for our platform is that it's also very easy to get engagement. You know, the videos are so short, the content's so short that you can, you can rack up like hundreds of thousands of views, like without really having any talent or uh, shaking your ass on the platform. That's good. I, I want to make sure that we're maximizing exposure to success routes that don't depend on us having talent. That is really key for our success, I think. Yeah, let's, let's just eliminate the talent part from the equation. I like it. I like it. I, I, that definitely sounds like an interesting project, uh, project referring to the creation of TikTok and, and how that data is being collected. I, I myself find that I am more and more drawn to uh, computer science and to machine learning just to kind of understand how this machine that's being built around us is working. Um, I know that's going to be one of my personal goals for 2021 is to try to wrap my head a little bit more around, you know, some of these core technologies that appear to be here to stay uh, machine learning, blockchain kind of programming in general, just to kind of be able to understand some of these phenomena, because it, it, it seems to me that they're going to be more and more prevalent, maybe only if in the background, but even if they're only in the background, I still want to know, you know, kind of what's, what's going on, especially with these things like, like TikTok, And, you know, what I'm, what I'm imagining is if in the future, I remember in Minority Report, which is a great film starring Tom Cruise, phenomenal movie, Tom Cruise, yep. best in the business, uh, where they have personalized advertising. And I'm wondering if in the future, what, what we'll have is every billboard will have a little camera on it and it will, it will record how engaged you are to that billboard. And then the next one that you look at, it'll take that information into account and maybe show you a different billboard that you might have more interest in. So in other words, like as we're living in a world that will slowly evolve to our personalities and it'll, it will be happening without us even knowing it. It'll just be all happening behind the scenes. Yeah. And there's a good argument that it's already, already happened to this point, yeah. but yep. the, the question then becomes, is it, a, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I, do, do we need to try to regulate it or should we right. just let it, let it go, see where it takes us? You know, you know where I, I have found myself becoming more and more worried is uh, when it comes to the way that this impacts kids, you know, and I, you know, let, let, let's just say young kids, let's say like, you know, people that are 10 years and younger. I, I, I find myself worrying a little bit more about uh, the amount of advertising that is targeted towards kids. And, you know, if, if we accept the premise that at some level, all advertising is trying to control somebody, mm -hmm. it, it bothers me a little bit more that there's so much effort into controlling uh, kids' minds, and that that is is probably only getting worse. I mean, I I just think of you know all these social media platforms. Obviously, a large part of their audience is going to be kids, and so I that that does concern me a little bit. I mean, we we still have all these really big questions about you know how it directs our future and how does this engage with society and all those things too. But my my more my more immediate concern is uh, what effects, if any, this has on young people. That's, that's been where I'm, where I'm thinking or where I'm worrying a little bit more than I might have been in the past. Yeah, and what, what is the marketing strategy for advertising to kids? Because in general, most of the products being sold are online and kids don't have credit cards. They don't have a way to buy stuff online. So is it, are the marketers just expecting the kids to just essentially bug the shit out of the parents until they you know, give right. a credit card and go buy whatever they want to buy. Do you remember back in the day, you know, this is back before the internet was as ubiquitous as it is now, but I remember back in the day 
when they would advertise a website to kids, they would always say, make sure you get your parents permission before logging online and then give the website. And uh, I always just laugh at that because I'm like, there's no kid in the world. First of all, every kid from essentially from the beginning of the, of the internet and definitely until now, kids are better at using it than their parents are. <laughs> right. I mean, that was probably always the case. And so the idea that, and I, I, I mean, you know, these like stupid dangerous, like enter your birthday before we're going on this website. It's like, okay. So I had to scroll to, you know, whatever year it is, minus 18 and I'm okay. I mean, has anybody ever done any kind of research into how effective those things actually are? I mean, really find me the, find me the, the 17 year old or the uh, 12 year old or whatever age it is who can't figure out how to subtract 18 from the year to get into whatever website they want to get into. I mean, it just makes no sense. Oh, yeah. You, you don't even have to get precise. You can say you were born in 1898. You know, I, that's what I always do. I always just scroll to the bottom. Right, right. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm 120 years old and I want to go on josecuervo.com. There's nowhere I want to be more. <laughs> I've been alive for 120 years. Show me the latest in Jose Cuervo products. Yeah. Show, show me the gold. <laughs> show me the gold. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's um, my my feeling. It's funny that you brought this up and I, I need more time to kind of gather my thoughts on this. I, I feel like we're heading into a world that is just becoming almost impossible to regulate because of the Internet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know anything about the dark web or things like that. But you do hear about these stories where people buy drugs online and they, you know, buy all, all other things online. It's just like, how do you how do you stop that? I mean, can you stop it? And then it gets into the point of is regulation more about the appearance of control than actually about controlling things? Is it to keep the masses, you know, satiated with the level of control that we claim to have over these systems? And, you know, then I, uh, then I got to take a step back and, you know, write more about peeing in public places or something like that. But I mean, it, it is, I mean, I, I do, I do, I do worry. It's like, how do you control something like that? I mean, I don't, how do you how do you begin to wrap your head around it? Yeah, maybe sometimes you just gotta you just gotta let it let let things take flight and then try to pick up the pieces later. I don't know. It's it's a tough call to make, but I think that there is some inherent uh, I don't know if it's a drive or instinct from people to to want to control to want to control other people. Hmm. And I'd like to hear your take on this. Uh, I think one of the most relevant examples of this is uh, I mean, maybe possibly masks because you see people promote, you see businesses, you see enterprises encouraging and uh, mandating masks to be worn in, you know, all, a wide variety of different environments. But a lot of times they just say masks or face coverings. So like, some people will have a full face shield or some people will have just like a half a face shield. Some people literally have a bandana that you can see through <laughs> around their face, but it's right. like these things are just checking boxes and they, it is checking a box kind of similar to, yeah, I'm going to check that box. It says I'm 18 and older. It doesn't really have that much of a pragmatic effect on who's coming in and who's leaving, but it's, I mean, what is it? Is it just a, a form of control that these people want to do or do you understand, you understand what I'm saying here? I do. I do. And I'll, and I'll, I'll just make it a little more broad from the mask, you know, and I'll, I would, I'll just instead give an example of, I think what you're talking about. So in jobs that I have now and that I've had in the past, they're kind of the, the, the term 
in industry for uh, environmental compliance, which is where I where I where I work in now. And uh, what we use to to criticize that kind of behavior is called pencil whipping. And so the idea is that you have this checklist of things you're supposed to check pretty thoroughly to keep the environment safe, to keep people safe. And what you don't want people to do is just to read through that checklist. Okay, yeah, doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and then check, 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 check. It's like, well, wait right, a minute, you're right. you're you're checking it off. Did you actually do it? And I, I always remember, you know, one one reason that I'm, and it's one of those things that happened to me early in in life that kind of always stuck with me, maybe more than it than it should have. But I, I remember one time I was playing a game like, like, would you rather, or like, you know, something like that. And one of the people that we were playing with was a helicopter pilot for a hospital. And the question was, and I, it was, it couldn't have been time more perfectly, but the, the question that that person pulled is you're trying to escape a building that's on fire and you go into a helicopter and you have this long checklist. Do you go through the whole checklist or do you just start the helicopter? Now I was thinking this guy was going to say, uh, you just take off and you, and, and you leave. That is not what he said. He said, look, mm -hmm. it may seem silly, but those things in that list have to be checked. They have to, have to, have to. And so I, what, what I worry about, and not, not so much with, with masks, but with maybe with, with other things that when we make, when you make following the rules hard, then it does become more about checking a box. And what I would rather have is a conversation over what rules do we really need to follow what rules really matter and then make the effort to make sure that those rules are being followed so like i like that we have speed limits i think that it makes sense that we don't have people going 100 miles per hour uh down a school zone but mm -hmm. at the same time i get annoyed where it's like you know you're going five over and you know let's say that you're going five miles per hour over in a in a school zone and it's five miles per hour over five miles per hour over but the percentage increases like quite a bit but it's like five miles per hour, so you could probably get, you like probably get away with it. It's like, I would rather we have focus on rules that matter and then we enforce them to the degree that they matter. So like speeding on a highway, you know, plus or minus five or 10 miles per hour, not really that much of a difference uh, versus, you know, speeding in like a school zone. It's like if you're supposed to be going 20 and you're going 25, like that's, that's a major difference. But to some people it's like, ah, it's only five miles per hour, what's the big deal? It's like, it's, it's quite a bit faster really to think about it. So so that when I when I hear examples of this, it's kind of where my where my mind goes is you know figure out what the rules need to be and then enforce those rules. But if you have too many rules, it does become just kind of a game of okay, well I'm doing this and I'm not doing that, and I'm you know and it just becomes something that you, that you get through rather than taking your time with and really doing it properly. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great point, and I think as, as a whole we do spend too much of our police force. We do allocate too much of our police force to uh, to these traffic tickets that you know debatably make people safer. Maybe right. not parking, parking, uh, right? Parking meter <laughs> yeah. meter maids. You know, as Adam, well, one of Adam Kroll's favorites. <laughs> yeah, meter maids, and then I, he's also a big fan of the jaywalking ticket. I know, I know that. <laughs> right, and the uh, the the red arrow on on the left turn, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's criminal. Criminal, criminal. Yeah, no, I, I, I would, I would like that uh, to see more of a conversation on that as well. Um, it, it feels like we're getting close to a stopping point. I, and I, Joe, I do want to give you the last word on this one. Uh, but I did, I wanted to say one thing that's going to come as a bit of a shock to our listeners. And it has really has nothing to do with anything that we've talked about tonight. But it is something that I have spent a little bit of time looking at recently. And I decided that I am going to um, 
you know, for the next few episodes end on this note. And that is going to be to encourage any of our listeners who are smokers, who, who smoke cigarettes, consider quitting this holiday season. Um, and I, I, I don't, basically I, I just, um, I know people who smoke. I know people that have smoked. Um, and it's always a good time to quit. It's always a good time to give up that habit. And uh, just know there are resources available for people who want to. And uh, there are uh, therapies and therapeutics, et cetera, that can increase, that can increase your odds of success when you, when you, uh, when you choose to quit. Um, but consider that this holiday season, um, you know, smoking is one of the things that as a society we've made, a, we made a good impact on, but we still have a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, I would like to, 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 um, encourage people this holiday season to, to consider that and, uh, to consider, uh, making that one thing that they work towards in the new year. Yeah, that's a great message for our listeners. And I would just add on to that. Um, in addition to, you know, there is help out there for the smokers. Um, I'd also like to remember, remind our listeners to uh, uh, spay and neuter their pets. You know, um, pet population control is important and it's, it's our responsibility to keep those numbers in check. Excellent point. Excellent point. And uh, yes, that is, that, that is, that is true. Uh, stay new to your pets. Uh, easy to do. Play your part in keeping pet populations down. I have a dog. My wife and I have a dog and it is neutered. And uh, that's the only anybody out there consider doing the same. Well, Joe, I think we're about ready to wrap up episode number nine. I just want to thank our, our listeners one more time uh, for, for being with us, for listening to the content, for sharing the content. Uh, again, the website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. We are on Instagram. Our Twitter also is uh, at roses underscore rhetoric. Uh, be sure to follow us on there. And again, check uh, back at the website frequently. We have new content weekly um, and uh, have enjoyed doing this so far. We're looking forward to many more episodes. But until next time, on behalf of Joseph Stanford, this is Jimmy Hackett saying ciao.